good morning and welcome to our services this morning. We hope and pray that you've been uplifted and edified in our worship of an awesome God this morning and we pray that that edification would continue as we dive into our third part in our Christian apologetic series this morning. If you're visiting here this morning for the first time, we ask, we'd ask that you would stick around after services and allow us the, the chance to get to know you and your family just a little bit better. Just to revisit this morning what we've covered so far in the series, we opened with the, with the concept of theism versus atheism. And we looked at the idea of the evidences for creation and asked the question, does God exist? We talked about the cosmological argument and the teleological argument from design. And we closed with the moral argument and talked about whether or not there's a moral law that's written on our hearts. The second sermon focused on the reliability and inspiration of the scriptures. Zach talked about what truth is and examined the the concept of whether absolute truth can actually be known. He then discussed that we can know the Bible is reliable and that it's inspired because of the eyewitness details, the embarrassing details, the secular history accounts of the Bible and the events surrounding the Bible, the deaths of the apostles and apparent motives that they might have had. And we encourage you, if you're new to La Prada, maybe this is your first time visiting with us, or maybe you're part of the family here and you've just missed the last couple of weeks, to go back and watch those messages and go on the website and watch all the messages we have. It's a good resource to study the Word of God. As a reminder, our theme text for the, for the series comes from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 and says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And just a reminder, the word answer there in the Greek is strong 627 and is the Greek word apologia. Apologia. If you are curious what apologetics is, that's it right there. Defining the strongs, the Greek word apologia is a verbal defense or a written statement. It's giving a verbal defense, defending our faith. And once again, just to reiterate, the goal of this series is not to teach us to win arguments. The goal of this series is not to give you material to break down other people. The point of this series is to give us the tools that we need, the information that we need to be able to give an answer and to plant a seed in someone's heart. To focus our study for the morning, we want to refresh on exactly what the Bible is and why we can, why we can trust that it is the Word of God. First of all, the Bible is not one book. It's actually a collection of books, 66 books in total, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Second, the Bible is written by 40 different men, and these men were of different professions. David was a king, Ezekiel was a prophet, Matthew was a tax collector, Peter, a fisherman, Luke was a physician. They were also written in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible was also written from different places. Moses wrote from the desert, Ezekiel wrote from captivity in Babylon, Paul wrote oftentimes from a prison cell. The Bible was also written from different purposes or for different purposes. The writers had different reasons to write these books. The gospel showed the story of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. And then the Acts chronicle the early church. Paul's epistles correct and encourage and oftentimes rebuke the early churches. Yet with all of these different pieces interacting together, we see an overarching story threaded through all 66 books of the Bible. God's plan to save mankind. I want you to turn your eyes to the screen for a second. I want, to, want you to notice the bottom of the screen there. Those little marks on the screen, those little white marks at the bottom, notate a, a chapter in the Bible. And every time a person, a place, a verse, a story, theologic principle, linking thought, 
anything else is noticed between a verse and another verse, there's a line that's drawn between those two lines at the bottom. And what we see here on this chart is a huge chart that shows us how many times the Bible cross-references itself or hyperlinks itself in today's society. In case you were curious, there are 63,779 cross-references on the screen. Now I want you to realize something. The people who wrote these books didn't have Google. They didn't have cell phones. I couldn't pick up a phone and say, hey, Paul, what are you writing about Christ here? We couldn't coordinate. We need to make sure our stories are exactly aligned to make sure it's showing the right details. They couldn't do that. They were across three different continents written in three languages over 1,500 years, but yet we see perfect unity, perfect harmonization, and a perfect story of God's love for his people. So the question is how? Because there may be 40 men, they may have different purposes, writing at different times, but brethren, do not be mistaken, there is only one author. One author that harmonizes all the stories, that completes the unity, that maintains the overarching themes. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, inspired by God. There is one author, and he's recorded the events surrounding Christianity by leading men with the Holy Spirit, as Zach talked about last week. And as we will study this morning, he has preserved that word for you and I today. And when we talk about the idea of apologetics and defending the Bible, one question almost always comes up, and Zach hinted at it last week, but the question is, why the Bible? Why the Bible over the, over the Quran or the teachings of Confucius? Why the Bible? Why do you personally believe that the Bible is true? And there's three answers that we love to give as Christians. One of them is, well, that's the way I was raised. Because that's the way I was raised. Well, folks, Muslim kids are raised to believe that the Quran is true. That that's the word of God. Does that make it true for them? You see, believing the Bible is true because that's the way you were raised is a horrible answer. Another bad answer is, well, I believe the Bible because the words changed my life. Because the words changed my life. Well, here's the reality. Crawfish etouffee has changed my life for the better. It really has. But that doesn't mean it's true for everybody. Despite what I might try to argue, in fact, my lovely mother would argue that it's the worst thing in the world. They have a completely different opinion. Here's the point. Even though the Bible might have changed your life as it should have, that doesn't mean much to the skeptic, and that doesn't make it true. And lastly, I believe the Bible is true because it says in the Bible that the Bible is true. And just like Zach talked about last week, the atheist or skeptic doesn't care what the Bible has to say. Just because the book says it's true does not make it true in and of itself. But it's reliability, textual verifiability, the depth of evidence, the proving claims, logic, and truth can prove that it's true. And we're going to dive right into that this morning. So let's talk for a minute about the, the New Testament writings. Essentially, when Paul's letter or one of the recorded gospels or whatever it was would make it to the church, the letter would be copied so that that church would have the scripture. But how was this done? First of all, we had writing materials. The early writings were done on things called scrolls. And there were generally two different types of scrolls, one being known as a parchment scroll and the other being known as a papyrus 
scroll. The parchment scroll was usually made out of animal skin. Another one we see is the papyrus scroll, which was made from the papyri plant, which was native to that region at that time. That's where these scrolls would have come from. You may recall a very specific statement from Paul to the evangelist Timothy. He said, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. So Paul wasn't writing his letters on Microsoft Word. He didn't have notebook paper. He had to have parchment scrolls. Now, why would Paul have reminded Timothy to bring him parchment scrolls? Probably because he wanted to write some more from his prison cell. Who knows? Maybe he figured, well, I've already had to correct Corinth twice. We may be getting ready for a third, right? He needed parchment to be able to write these letters. And Paul and the writers would have used one of these two documents to send to an individual or a congregation, sometimes like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. Then, as we mentioned, the congregation would receive these letters and copy them. And then these congregations would send these letters to the next congregation so these letters could be rotated around. Think of what Paul says to the church at Colossae in Colossians 4 and 16. He says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, how was this done? Well, after the elders got done reading the letter of the congregation or studying it or whatever they were using the letter for, it was Paul's wish and therefore God, God, by extension, that his wish that these letters be rotated throughout the early church. So there were men known as scribes that would take the letter and copy it on a new parchment so that the individual congregation could have it. In fact, Don Wilkins in his book, The Text of the New Testament, The Science and Art of Textual Criticism, says some of the earliest New Testament manuscripts we now have indicate that a professional scribe copied them. Many of the other papyri confirm that a semi-professional hand copied them, while most of these early papyri give evidence of being produced by a copyist who is literate and experienced. Therefore, either literate or semi-professional copyists did the vast majority of our early papyri with some being done by professionals. Understand this wasn't 21st century America. People aren't going to school to learn how to read and write. Most of the time, the scribes are the only ones who could read and therefore write. Just to detail a few of these rules this morning, from an apologetical standpoint, it's vital that we understand there's a certain methodology or rule book, if you will, that the scribes had to follow. In fact, Daniel Wallace says this about this. He says, in about the second century BC, the rules for careful copying and textual criticism were developed heavily in Alexandria, Egypt, which became the primary scholarly city in the ancient world for book reproduction before the New Testament was ever written. The New Testament manuscripts became benefactors of that approach. And so what he's saying here is that these rules that the scribes are following to copy ancient texts were actually done far before the New Testament was ever written. And so the New Testament would have followed that same line of thinking from the scrolls or from the scribes. And just a few details to, to kind of talk about what these scribes had to do. First of all, they had to use a special mixture of black ink to print perfectly on the parchment. The exact numbers of letters and words on every single line had to match the original document perfectly or the whole thing was scrapped. Every word and every letter was counted and there had to be a space between each word and each letter and could not be touching. Scribes were not allowed to copy from memory, could not copy sentence for sentence and could not copy word for word, but had to go letter by letter. And after copying was completed, the work was then inspected by at least three, if not more, senior specialist scribes. And if a single letter touched, if one word was misspelled, if the spacing wasn't correct, if the ink wasn't dark enough, not only would they reject the page, but the entire text 
was rejected and they started over. As you can tell, the process of copying these letters in early Testament New Christianity may be a little over the top, but not for the word of God. Brethren, when we say the word of God, or when we say God has preserved his word, this is what we mean. It's perfect, it's inerrant, it's without contradiction. Well, Ethan, you know, I, I understand that the New Testament copied, was copied really well by all these scribes, but it's been 2,000 years since Paul sat down to write that. How in the world is the thing in my hand the same thing that Paul wrote down? Can I actually trust that the Bible in my hand is the same thing that Paul had, or the same thing the early church had? It's gone through different languages, been translated multiple times. How can I be sure? Well, to prove anything, we need a process to test it. If you recall from the first sermon in the series, we talked about science and how all scientific theories have to be tested and have to be repeated to be able to be a proven theory. Well, when it comes to history or text, we can't use scientific method to validate, can we? For example, if I could have any wish in this world, assuming all things were possible, I would have one day back with my Uncle Chad and my Papa. Just one day to introduce them to Sadie, to introduce them to their first granddaughter-in-law, to see Bailey's face as Chad tells some ridiculous story that has my Papa rolling in the background. I would love that, to show my wife, to show Sadie who these men were. But you know what the reality is? The entire concept, the entire thought of Gerald and Chad Hanley and Bailey and Sadie's mind are other people's memories and other people's thoughts that are put into their mind. All Sadie will know about her papa is what her family will tell her. She can't verify those stories with her own eyes. Because history and texts are not scientifically verifiable. I can't repeat history. I cannot bring Chad back and show Bailey what a man he was. Just can't. So how do Bailey or Sadie or anybody else figure out what type of men they were? Well, they take all the evidence surrounding it from all the people around them, and they ascertain the truth. And brethren, the Bible is the same way. I cannot repeat history and scientifically prove that Paul's letter and the words he wrote actually happened through repeated testable theorization, can I? And this is where we see the necessity of textual criticism. Textual criticism is defined as the process of thinking critically about manuscripts and variations in the biblical text found in those manuscripts in order to identify the original reading of the Bible. The methodology of this textual criticism is carried out by comparing and contrasting the copies of the original that have been recovered. And there are several rules that are followed, but we can kind of sum these up in two generalized statements. Number one, the closer the copies are to the original text, or the closer the time gap, the lower it lowers the chance of textual corruption. For example, if I have a text that's two years copied from the original versus the text that's 3,000 years copied from the original, Well, which one's closer? Well, it would be the one that's two years away. The logical rule, right? Secondly, we have the more copies that exist, the easier it is to accurately cross-reference the text. For example, if I have a text that has three copies versus a text that has 3,000 copies, well, which one's easier to figure out the original text? Well, it would be the one with the most copies, right? The one with 3,000. That'd be a lot of chips to bet in off of two copies, but if I have 3,000 copies from all over the world that say the same thing, I can trust it. 
Welcome to Textual Criticism. And this morning, we're going to put the Bible up for textual criticism and look at other New Ancient, New Ancient documents and figure out if it compares. I want you to turn to the screen for just a second. And we're going to walk through this chart as we discuss some of this manuscript evidence of the Bible. And we often say, hey, the Bible's backed by manuscript evidence, but we don't often explain what we mean by that. So let's take the time to do that this morning. Starting out, we have Plato's dialogues there at the top. Now, I want you to just focus on the, the two on the far right there. It's highlighted in yellow. The gap from the original and the manuscript copies. The, these are the rules of textual criticism. So what we see here with Plato is that the time gap is 150 years from the original and 200 or so manuscripts, 210 to 240, I think is what the chart says. So not bad, right? Skip down to Homer's The Iliad. You might recognize this piece of literature. Familiar lines like, you will never be lovelier than you are right now. Famous line from that book. Has 1,800 copies with a 450-year time gap between the closest copy and the original. Skip down to Caesar's Gallic Wars, 250 copies within 900 years of the original. And we can trust those things. We can trust that those are accurate copies. This is the standard of textual criticism. Homer's The Iliad is reliable because based off the evidence, we know that we have an accurate copy of what Homer wrote. That's the truth. That is the standard of textual criticism. So what about the New Testament? Roughly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts dating to within 30 years of the original writing. And that's just in Greek. You throw in the other translations, we have roughly 18,000. Throw in the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole has 66,000 manuscripts. A lot different from other ancient texts, isn't it? Now look back at the chart. Homer's The Iliad has 1,800 manuscripts, give or take. The closest to the Greek New Testament out of all the ancient texts in the world is Homer's The Iliad. 4,000 manuscripts short. Now you may say, hold on, Ethan, 4,000 copies doesn't seem like a lot. But I want you to focus on the other side of that textual criticism, the other side of the coin. The Iliad time gap is what? 450 years. 450 years from the, from the copy to the original document. We aren't even 450 years old as a nation yet. But look at the Greek New Testament. We have 6,000 copies dating as early as 30 years from the original writer. 30 years. The very copiers of the Greek New Testament very well could have known the original writers himself. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying the math adds up to where it's possible. These copies could have still been circulating when the very eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive. They could verify whether or not these manuscripts were true. So maybe you're a visual learner. I know most of us are. So let's take a look at some bar graphs to explain the idea. Look on the left, the time gap between the relative dates of the copies. That top bar there is the New Testament. You can see that the New Testament, compared to other ancient texts, knocks it out of the ballpark. It's a least time gap by a landslide, the first rule of textual criticism. Look at the second bar graph, the number of manuscripts. You can see the New Testament once again way up there on the bar graph. Second rule of textual criticism, number of manuscripts. I want to show you one last chart to hopefully summarize this thought this morning. That one over there on the, on the far left that says four feet of the average classical writer, what we're doing here is if you took all the ancient texts from classical writers and we took a piece of notebook paper and we stacked those texts up, 
the entirety of the ancient texts of the world, all the manuscripts dating all of those things we looked at at the previous chart would stand four feet high. For reference, the World Trade Center is 1,776 feet tall. If you look at the New Testament, it is over a mile high. Is how high those, those manuscripts would stack up. You take the Bible as a whole, two and a half miles high. I hope you're getting the point. To say that the Bible is not reliable, to say that it doesn't stack up with textual criticism is a false claim. There was a quote by a man named Bruce Metzger. He said, the amount of evidence for the text of the New Testament, whether derived from manuscripts, early versions, or patristic quotations, is so much greater than that available for any ancient classical order that the necessity of restoring to emendation is reduced to the smallest dimensions. We can trust it. Just a couple of examples of manuscripts to show you kind of what we're talking about. The first of which is known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. These manuscripts consisted of over 950 different texts consisting of complete, partial, and fragment pieces with over 200 of them being copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. These were found in the caves of what is called Kirbet Qumran which is on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, in case you were wondering how they got the name the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's just that geographically, that's where these texts were found. And in the caves, they found every single book of the Hebrew Old Testament except for the book of Esther. It's the only Old Testament book not represented in its complete form. And this picture here is what is known as the Great Isaiah Scroll from the caves of Qumran. And the reason this is important is due to the textual criticism of the Bible. In fact, before this discovery, the closest time gap that we had from the Hebrew Old Testament was 900 AD. That was the closest copy we had to the original. Now think back to that slide at the beginning. When was the Old Testament written? From 2300 BC to 400 BC, meaning 900 AD is what? 1300 years after the original author. It's a long time, isn't it? But after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date to approximately 300 to 100 B.C., we see the entire Hebrew Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, completely manuscripted, completely represented within 100 to 300 years of when the authors would have penned the documents. And you know what they've figured out? Is that the scroll found in the caves of Qumran, the great Isaiah scroll, is indistinguishable and virtually identical to the scroll that we already had in 900 AD. You know what that tells us? The Bible has been accurately translated throughout the history of the world. It's been accurately copied. God preserves his word and we can trust it, but I get it. You know, hold on. We follow the New Testament today. That's an Old Testament example. So let's take a look at it. The second example I want to bring to your attention is known as the John Rylands fragment, otherwise known as Papyrus P52. It was originally discovered in Egypt and may come from the famous site of Manessa. It was a ruined city in Upper Egypt where men named Greenfull and Hunt completed these excavations and found this fragment. And what the P-52 is, is a fragment of the book of John in chapter 18. And on the front contains the verses 31 through 33, and on the back contains verses 37 through 38. And it dates all the way back to 125 A.D., putting the time gap at roughly 30 years. And what we have is an ancient fragment, which if it was as early as 100 AD, it was actually sent to four papyrologists who studied this. Three of them dated it between 100 and 125, and one of them actually dated it at 90 AD. 
And if that's true, it would have been a first or second generation copy of the original. These words were copied and recopied over the centuries. Here's how they appear in the 400 Codex Alexandrius. They are the same words, the same message, the same story three centuries later. The unisil text of the first eight century gave way to the minuscule form. And here in the 12th century, we have the same text, the same message, the same words being transmitted again. In 1516, printed and published Greek New Testament by Desiderius Erasmus, his third edition, we see the same words, the same text, the same story printed again. We can move into the 20th century in the 21st edition of the Nesso-Alen text of 1949, and we have the same words, the same message, the same text translated again. One text written during a time of intense persecution upon papyri 1,900 years ago, most probably at the risk of the scribe's life, transmitted faithfully through time. But what about English? What's it say in English? Let's compare it to what we have 2,000 years later in the KJV. Being this is a fragment, the writing is going to be a bit choppy, but we'll read it on the, on the left there. The front is the English part of this fragment. It says, the Jews, for us, it is not permitted to kill anyone so that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Entered, therefore, again into the praetorium Pilate, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Thou art the king of the Jews. That's what the fragment says in English. So let's look at the KJV in John 18, 31 and 33. KJV says, Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews, therefore, said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying the death that he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? The same message repeated throughout history. The same text, the same words. And just to show you a sense of how fast we got these copies, here's a general timeline of the explosion of the manuscript evidence that we have and why we can trust that these things are true. So let's take a look at a map. First of all, we have early 2nd century writings in these texts here that you see popping up around those ancient areas. First of all, we have P60 and P46, which are essentially the Gospels that start to circulate in the early 2nd century. When the mid-2nd century gets here, we see these same copies have now spread to other parts of the world, carried by Christians to other places. Maybe they came over there to these areas, had them copied, and brought them back. And then by the end of the 3rd century, or by the early 3rd century, we have a complete copy of the Greek New Testament spread around the world. And what we need to take away from this was at no time did one man ever possess the sole copy of the Bible. This is not a book in which one man had divine revelation, and you're just going to have to trust it. Now, we'll talk about in a few minutes of of where the Bible's availability was reduced, but we need to understand it did not come from one man, nor was ever in the hand of one man. And obviously, we can trace every single line of transmission this morning, but the point is this. The manuscript evidence exploded. And we see within 300 years that the complete Bible that is virtually identical to the one that you have in your hand today was spread around the world. Just a timeline for you to consider this morning of manuscript evidence. First of all, in 125 AD, we have that P52 that we covered a minute ago containing John 18, 31 through 38. 
150 to 200 AD, we have the Bodmer Papyrus detailing the entire book of John, third century copies of all four Gospels, Acts, and the Pauline Epistles. In 200 AD, we have the Chester Beatty Papyri, which is a late second century, most of the New Testament, including the book of Revelation. In 200 AD, we have the Diatessaron by Titation, a harmonized, complete gospel story. And then in 325 AD, we have the Codex Vaticanus, which has the entire Old Testament and most of the New Testament in the Greek. And then by 350 AD, we have Codex Sinaiticus, which is most of the Old Testament, and then the entire New Testament in Greek. Brethren, we can trust that the word of God was accurately copied. We can trust that it was preserved for us. The same text, the same story, the same message throughout the entirety of history. But don't just take my word for it. Let's talk about it. And for the rest of our time this morning... What we're going to talk about is a translation of scripture and ask the question, can I trust that the translation is accurate? The first thing we need to recognize is that with translations and translation accuracy in all the manuscripts, there are actually 150,000 textual variants. And what textual variance is, is a difference between a manuscript. In other words, one says one thing and another manuscript says another. And when we talk about the preservation of God's word, this can be a little challenging to understand. Variance in translations, right? And you may be thinking, well, Ethan, you're not really helping your case proving the accuracy of the Bible by bringing up textual variance. But there's a reason we talk about this, because it's a common objection to the Bible. That due to the variances, there was no way that it could have been translated accurately. So let's talk about the variance. First of all, over 99% of the variance have absolutely no effect on the meaning of the text. For example, variants might have been one of these different things. First of all, it could have been spelling conventions, meaning the same word, meaning the same thing, just spelled a little differently, such as who versus whom or a versus an. We could also have similar looking verbs, abbreviated form of God and the abbreviated form of the word he look almost identical in the text. So a similar looking word could have been translated from the Greek being God to he, but the reader can still ascertain to who or what the author was talking about, so it doesn't change the meaning of the text. We could also have transposed words. Sometimes in variances, the words would be switched with with one another, so instead of Jesus Christ, we have Christ Jesus, accounting for some variants, but once again ask the question, does it change the meaning? No, it's still Jesus. We could also have synonyms. Now, this is a modern-day example, and it was a short verse for me to put on the screen, but you could have Jesus wept instead of Jesus cried. means the same thing, right? None of these have anything to do with the doctrinal teachings of, of Christ or the apostles. We could also have mistaken corrections. Sometimes the scribes would see a difficult reading from maybe Paul, and they would look at it and say, well, I don't think Paul wrote that. I've never seen it before. And so they would attempt to correct the manuscript evidence, and then that would actually interject a variance because it was actually the right copy. But once again, never found in the form of Christ's doctrine or Christ's teaching. And you can visualize this happening, right? Imagine a scribe sitting by candlelight in secret, because we won't talk about it this morning, but the Christians were being heavily persecuted at the time. So copying of scripture was the best, was the worst profession for trying to elongate your life. So they were in secret by candlelight oftentimes. To make this a little easier, let's take a look at an example out of Romans 16 and 3. 
Manuscript one might have said, greet Priscilla and Aquil, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Manuscript two might have said, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Jesus Christ. Manuscript three says, greet Aquila and Priscilla, my helpers in Christ Jesus. And maybe manuscript four says, welcome Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Jesus Christ. Now from these four manuscripts, do you think we can figure out what Romans 16 and three says? You bet. Romans 16 and three, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. And by using these four manuscripts, which by the way, all have errors, we can ascertain what the original sentence might've said. Now imagine instead of four manuscripts that are all wrong, you have 6,000 and most of them are correct. You think you can figure out what the original copy said? You better believe it. This example here is over 99% of what the variance in translations is. Spelling errors, grammatical errors that have absolutely no effect on the meaning or authenticity of the verse. Now, you might have noticed that I said over 99%. That's not 100% or issues like these. But what about the other ones? You might remember me saying a couple times that not a single variant affects the doctrines or teachings of Christ. And the truth is there are only about 50 variances that have any real significance in Scripture. Now, what do I mean by real significance? It means instead of a simple spelling error, we have a manuscript variation. One says one thing, one says another. In other words, some of these verses, the most manuscripts contain the verse, and in other verses, the earliest manuscripts contain the verse. Examples of these are like Acts 8 and 37, Matthew 18 and 11, and Mark 9, 44. We won't read those this morning, but all of these verses and a few more are represented very well in manuscript history, just in different ways, some with the most and some with the earliest copies. And so what we see with these translations is that some include these verses and some translations do not, depending on the translator's preference. Do they like the earliest manuscript evidence or do they like the most represented manuscript evidence? And what we need to understand very clearly is not a single one of these variances is an isolated doctrinal issue, meaning that not a single one of these verses gives a doctrine or teaching of Christ that is not also represented somewhere else in the Bible. To sum up this point, I want to read you a quote from Luke Wayne from the Christian's Apologetics and Research Ministry. He says, The majority of textual variants are of such insignificant nature that it is impossible to translate them. Even of the variants that can be translated, the vast majority have literally no effect on the meaning of the text. They are things like word order, such as Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ. The presence or absence of things like personal titles, Lord Jesus Christ versus Jesus Christ versus Christ our Lord, and the like. Among the small minority of variants that have any impact on meaning, in the majority of cases, it is extremely obvious which option is the original and which was a later scribal mistake. Even among those very few meaningful variants where there is some reasonable question as to which option is, is the original, not a single one impacts any central Christian doctrine. In even the hardest cases, the evidence is sufficiently early and numerous that we can be sure one of the options we have before us in the variants is the correct one so that nothing has been lost. Brethren, we can trust that the translations are accurate, that it was copied correctly, and that the Bible is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And for the last few minutes of your time this morning, I want to talk about the history of English translations and how we got the Bible into English today. 
First of all, in 363 AD to 397 AD, the canonicity of the Bible was established at the councils of Laodicea, the council of Hippo, and the council of Carthage. And they confirmed that the inspired books of God include the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books. They did consider the Apocrypha as valuable, but they maintained that it was not the inspired word of God. And if you recall from earlier, we mentioned that by 350 AD, we have two codex books, one of which was named Sinaiticus and one of which was named Vaticanus. So by 350 AD, roughly 317 years after the crucifixion of Christ, we have a complete copy of the entire Bible in Greek and Hebrew, the complete text fully available to the Christian. But in 382 AD, a pope by the name of Pope Damascus of the Roman Catholic Church comes in and decides, well, we need to translate the scriptures out of Greek and Hebrew over to the Latin common tongue to help the common people be able to read the scriptures. And so what he does is he employs a man by the name of Jerome. He's a confessor, historian, priest, and theologian to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the Latin tongue. So Jerome's sent to go translate the Bible and successfully does so. And Jerome would produce 80 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and he would also translate 14 books outside the canonicity of the Bible, otherwise known as the Apocrypha. And then in 600 AD, when 600 AD came around, the Roman Catholic Church decreed that the only language scripture could be in was that of Latin, using their Latin Vulgate that Jerome translated. There was a problem with this, however. Most of the Roman Catholics at the time were not of Latin-speaking origin, meaning the only people who were able to read and interpret scriptures was who? The Catholic priest. In fact, if you look into some of, early, some of the early church history and secular sources, there was a penalty up to and including death if you were found with a scripture that wasn't in Latin. Now, why in the world would someone claiming to be of God, claiming to be a follower of God, kill people for having a Bible? Because he wanted monopoly over the revelation of God's word. In other words, he wanted to control what Christians knew about God's word and about Christianity, and he used it to his advantage. And up until around 1400 AD, the Roman Catholic Church pretty much controlled what you could learn from the Bible and ran a monopoly over Christianity. And not to get on a doctrinal rant this morning, but just as we said, the Latin Vulgate was the only legal translation from 600 AD into 14, well into the 1400s. Now think about some of the teachings that came out during this time when Catholic priests are the only ones who can read the Bible. For example, in 1095, Pope Urban II introduced the idea of indulgences, which was the concept that, hey, I want to go commit this sin so I can just come in and pay the church ahead of time and then I can commit that sin, indulgences. Also, the idea that I could pay for a loved one's salvation once they've passed, I can pay the church and then they can allow me to go into heaven. And if you haven't done much early church study, you might recognize the instruments were not a part of New Testament Christianity. You want to take a guess at when an instrument was brought into the church? 666 AD by Pope Vitalian. 66 years after the Pope declares that the Latin Vulgate is the only legal translation. What I'm hoping you're realizing and hoping you're understanding is that the Roman Catholic Church was corrupt during these times, and it made it of necessity for the common man to have a Bible in his tongue and glean from God's word. And so that necessity came to fruition with a man named John Wycliffe. 
Wycliffe was an Oxford professor and theologian. He, he refuted the Catholic Church's teachings. In fact, he's quoted, in fact, the, the church is quoted by saying this about Wycliffe's Bible. The church said, by this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar, and they are more readily available to lay and even to women who can read than they were to learn scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. To which Wycliffe would respond, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard Christ, God's law in his own tongue, so did Christ's apostles. And so Wycliffe would translate out of the Latin Vulgate and produce with his friend John Purvey the first handwritten complete Bible in English. And in fact, the Pope was so mad about this that 40 years after Wycliffe died, he went to his gravesite, dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered them in a river. That's how mad the Pope was. Why? Because it killed the corruption and profit that the Catholic Church had been getting off of the Latin Vulgate and having a monopoly over the scriptures. Just an example of what the Wycliffe Bible might have read, for sake of my wonderful English teacher grandmother, I'm not going to try and read this for you this morning, but I do want you to notice a couple of words there in the English, one of which is seade, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, um, and then we have answerade instead of answer, and then we have treuth instead of truth. In 1455, Johannes Gutenberg invented the Gutenberg Press, which allowed him to print the first copy of the Latin Vulgate. And then in 1516, we see that man, Desiderius Erasmus, that we talked about earlier, viewed, and rightfully so, that the Latin Vulgate was the corrupt source of Catholic ideology. So to ascertain the original text, he used manuscripts from Greek and Hebrew to create the Greek to Latin New Testament. And this is also the establishment of a new Greek Testament, and one in which the KJV would later be translated from, otherwise known as the Textus Receptus. And then in 1526, a man named William Tyndale, using the new Greek-Latin New Testament from Erasmus as his source, retranslated the Bible into English. And due to the availability of the Gutenberg Press, this was also the first English translation to be printed. Since the printing press was obviously much faster, Bibles began to be distributed to the common people a lot faster. But of course, the common man having access to the Bible does what? shows the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. And so even at this time, it was common to still be executed for possessing a Bible that wasn't in Latin. In fact, Tyndale himself managed to flee for over 11 years and continued printing Bibles for the common people, but unfortunately was caught and eventually burned at the stake. Just an example of how this Bible might have looked in English. You can see different words there. We still have treuth, and then we have, instead of unto, we have vuntu, is how that old English would have looked. And then in 1535, we see the Coverdale Bible, which is the first complete Bible printed in English. A few years later, the Coverdale Bible became the first one to be printed on the printing press. 1539, we see the Great Bible is the first English Bible available for public use. Now, this was still controlled by the Roman Catholic Church. And so to allow and still control who could have access to the scriptures, they chained it to a pulpit. And that's how you could read your Bible, right in front of all the priests controlling it, chained on the pulpit. Not exactly the definition of autonomy when it comes to the scriptures. Then in 1560, we have the Geneva Bible. And that would come onto the scene and be the choice Bible for over 100 years due to its use of the first time, including chapters and verses. 
Understand this morning that chapters and verses were not always included. These were letters and stories written to people and to churches. So when we read our Bibles, we need to make sure we put the scripture in its proper context. Understand the word of God is inspired, but not the chapters and numbers. And then in 1611, we have the King James Bible. And King James decided that we need a translation to end all other translations. And he made a very delicate process in doing so. And I want to show you one of the options that he had. And this is quoted from a man named David Daniels in his book, Bible Versions, Your Question Answers. He says, 54 scholars were appointed in 1604. And a few overseers were also present who went from group to group. In time, through death, the number of translators diminished to 47. They were given three locations to work, Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. And two groups worked at each location, making up a total of six groups. The Bible was also divided up into six sections. Each group took one section, working on one book at a time. First, each translator made his own translation of the book, which was reviewed by each other member of the group. Then the whole group reviewed the book. When they all agreed on the translation, they sent it to the other five groups for evaluation. These groups then returned it to the original committee, making in, marking anything that they disagreed with. The original group would then go over the book again. When all six committees finished with the book, it was sent with any differences that were left to a special committee made up of one leader from each of the six groups. They solved any remaining problems, and the book was sent to the printers. In all, every single verse of the Bible was carefully examined and decided upon a total of 14 times by as many as 50 or more people. This made it impossible for any one translator to impose his personal viewpoint on a passage. He had to have logical reasons for a translation that were good enough to persuade every other scholar before it could be written into the, into the text. The KJV would go on to become the most printed book in all of history and still is today. And we do need to understand that what you have in your hands today is not the 1611, but is actually the 1769 Baskerville revision of the 1611 KJV. An example of the text from 1611, and I'll read this one. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Isis answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear a witness a unto the trueth. Everyone who is of the trueth heareth my voice. That's what the 1611 KJV would have said. And then in 1971, the NASB, the New American Standard Version, would come out and uses what we call word-for-word translation. And understand there's a difference between word-for-word translation and thought-for-thought translation. Word-for-word translation is one that seeks to look at the original Greek and the earliest text to translate English, taking out the translator's personal interpretation. So the NASB is word-for-word. But in 1973, contrary to word-for-word, the New International Version comes out, which was thought-for-thought. So instead of going word by word, I just get the general idea and then write my own sentence that's close enough, thought for thought. So the NIV, when compared to that of the KJV and other word-for-word translations, is actually not that accurate. In 1982, the New King James Version was published that sought to directly translate from the KJV into modern English. So we also have to be careful with some of these because they were translating English to English, possibly misrepresenting some of the original writing. And then in 2002, we have the English Standard Version that was published to gap the, between the readability of the NIV and the accuracy 
of the New American Standard in the KJV. And a lot of you may use that ESV this morning. Just an example of what the English Standard Version says in John 18 and 37 again. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Same message, same story, same words today. In closing this morning, I want to read you 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and then verse 20 and 21. It says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And in verse 20, Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Brethren, as Christians, we do not follow lies. We have a faith that is built on evidence. We don't follow something that was made up. We follow something that is true, something that's verifiable through science, logic, truth, and something that was inspired and written by one author. I hope and pray we can find Matthew 5 and 18 to be true. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There are a lot of people in today's society looking for truth. And I want you to know this morning, I hope you agree with me that we have the truth in front of us today. That we have the inspired, perfect, preserved, inerrant, infallible word of God. We have it in book form. We have it in our common tongue and it's readily available to you. Think about the amazing links that God's taken to make sure that you can read his word and understand it in your common tongue. The fact that you can access God's word anywhere at all times using the internet. You think that's by accident? No. God's gone to great lengths to ensure that we have his complete and unfettered access to his word. Like Zach said last week, if you want to know what God wants from you, you want divine revelation from the creator, you want to know how to deal with anxiety and stress and illness, how to live a life that has purpose and meaning, how to have a loving, selfless marriage, how to raise children to be children of God, open his word and read it. We've put the Bible up against all types of textual criticism this morning. We've broken it down, and every single time it passes with flying colors, the question that's left for you this morning is, what are you going to do with it? This morning, you have an opportunity to become right with God. And folks, this morning may be your last time to do that. Life is short, so don't postpone eternal life. Don't postpone following Jesus. Now is the time of salvation. Maybe this morning you've been struggling with life, things have happened, and you just need to be lifted up and prayed for and prayed with. We stand ready to do that for you this morning. Will you come as we stand and as we sing?